be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Cricket on the Hearth, Chapter 1, Chirp the First, Part 2. In the last part, we were introduced to the Peary Bingles on a cold, wintry evening. In this part, Mrs. Peary Bingle reflects on the first night they came to their family home. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. seen little Mrs. Peary Bingle come back with her husband, tugging at the clothes basket and making the most strenuous exertions to do nothing at all, for he carried it, would have amused you almost as much as it amused him. It may have entertained the cricket too, for anything I know, but certainly It now began to chirp again, vehemently. Hey day, said John, in his slow way. It's merrier than ever tonight, I think. And it's sure to bring us good fortune, John. It always has done so. To have a cricket on the hearth is the luckiest thing in all the world. John looked at her as if he had very nearly got the thought into his head that she was his cricket-in-chief, and he quite agreed with her. But it was probably one of his narrow escapes, for he said nothing. The first time I heard its cheerful little note, John, was on that night when you brought me home. When you brought me to my new home here, its little mistress, nearly a year ago, you recollect, John? Oh yes, John remembered. I should think so. Its chirp was such a welcome to me. It seemed so full of promise 
and encouragement. It seemed to say, you would be kind and gentle to me, and would not expect, I had a fear of that then, John, to find an old head on the shoulders of your foolish little wife. John thoughtfully patted one of the shoulders, and then the head, as though he would have said, no, no, he had had no such expectation. He had been quite content to take them as they were. And really, he had reason. They were very comely. It spoke the truth, John, when it seemed to say so, for you have ever been, I am sure, the best, most considerate, most affectionate of husbands to me. This has been a happy home, John, and I love the cricket for its sake. Why, so do I then, said the carrier. So do I, Dot. I love it for the many times I have heard it, and the many thoughts its harmless music has given me. Sometimes, in the twilight, when I have felt a little solitary and downhearted, before Baby was here to keep me company and make the house happy, when I had thought how lonely you would be if I should die, how lonely I should be if I could know that you had lost me, dear. It's chirp, chirp, chirp upon the hearth that seemed to tell me of another little voice, so sweet, so very dear to me, before whose coming sound my trouble vanished like a dream. And when I used to fear, I did fear once, John. I was very young, you know, that ours might prove to be an ill-assorted marriage, I being such a child, and you more like a guardian than my husband and that you might not, however hard you tried, be able to learn to love me as you hoped and prayed you might. Its chirp, chirp, chirp had cheered me up again and filled me with new trust and confidence. I was thinking of these things tonight, dear, when I sat expecting you, and I loved the cricket for their sake. And so do I, repeated John. But Dot, I hope and pray that I might learn to love you. How you talk. I had learnt that, long before I brought you here, to be the cricket's little mistress, Dot. She laid her hand an instant on his arm and looked up at him with an agitated face, as if she would have told him something. Next moment, she was down upon her knees before the basket, speaking in a sprightly voice and busy with the parcels. There are not many of them tonight, John, but I saw some goods behind the cart just now, and though they give more trouble, perhaps... Still they pay as well 
so we have no reason to grumble, have we? Besides, you have been delivering, I dare say, as you came along. Oh yes, John said. A good many. Why, what's this round box? Heart alive, John. It's a wedding cake. Leave a woman alone to find out that, said John admiringly. Now a man would never have thought it, whereas it's my belief that if you was to pack a wedding cake up in a tea chest, or a turned up bedstead, or a pickled salmon keg, or any unlikely thing, a woman would be sure to find it out directly. Yes, I called for it at the pastry cook's. And it weighs I don't know what. Whole hundred weights, cried Dot, making a great demonstration of trying to lift it. Whose is it, John? Where is it going? Read the writing on the other side, said John. Why, John, my goodness, John. Ah, who'd have thought it, John returned. You never mean to say, pursued Dot, sitting on the floor and shaking her head at him, that it's Gruff and Tackleton the toy maker. John nodded. Mrs. Peerybingle nodded also. Fifty times at least. Not in assent, in dumb and pitying amazement, screwing up her lips the while with all their little force. They were never made for screwing up, I am clear of that, and looking the good carrier through and through in her abstraction. Miss Slowboy, in the meantime, who had a mechanical power of reproducing scraps of current conversation for the delectation of the baby, with all the scents stuck out of them, and all the nouns changed into the plural number, inquired aloud of that young creature. Was it Gruff's and Tackleton's the toy makers then? And would it call at pastry cooks for wedding cakes? And did its mother know the boxes? when its father brought them home, and so on. And that is really to come about, said Dot. Why, she and I were girls at school together, John. He might have been thinking of her, or nearly thinking of her perhaps, as she was in that same school time. He looked upon her with a thoughtful pleasure, but he made no answer. And he's as old, as unlike her. Why, how many years older than you is Gruff and Tackleton John? How many more cups of tea shall I drink tonight at one sitting than Gruff and Tackleton? Ever took in four, I wonder, replied John, good-humouredly, 
as he drew a chair to the round table and began the cold ham. As to eating, I eat but little, but that little I enjoy, Dot. Even this, his usual sentiment at mealtimes, one of his innocent delusions, for his appetite was always obstinate and flatly contradicted him, awoke no smile in the face of his little wife, who stood among the parcels, pushing the cake box slowly from her with her foot, and never once looked, though her eyes were cast down too, upon the dainty shoe she generally was so mindful of. Absorbed in thought, she stood there, heedless alike of the tea and John, although he called to her and wrapped the table with his knife to startle her, until he rose and touched her on the arm, when she looked at him for a moment and hurried to her place behind the tea board, laughing at her negligence. But not as she had laughed before. The manner and the music were quite changed. The cricket, too, had stopped. Somehow, the room was not so cheerful as it had been. Nothing like it. So these are all the parcels, are they, John? She said, breaking a long silence which the honest carrier had devoted to the practical illustration of one part of his favourite sentiment, certainly enjoying what he ate, if it couldn't be admitted that he ate but little. So these are all the parcels, are they, John? That's all, said John. Why, no, I... Laying down his knife and fork, and taking a long breath. I declare, I've clean forgotten the old gentleman. The old gentleman? In the cart, said John. He was asleep among the straw the last time I saw him. I very nearly remembered him twice since I came in, but he went out of my head again. Hello, ye hip there, rouse up, that's my hearty. John said these latter words outside the door, whither he had hurried with the candle in his hand. Miss Slowboy, conscious of some mysterious reference to the old gentleman, and connecting in her mystified imagination certain associations of a religious nature with the phrase, was so disturbed that hastily rising from the low chair by the fire to seek protection near the skirts of her mistress, and coming into contact as she crossed the doorway with an ancient stranger, she instinctively made a charge or a butt at him, with the only offensive instrument within her reach, 
this instrument happening to be the baby. Great commotion and alarm ensued, which the sagacity of Boxer rather tended to increase, for that good dog, more thoughtful than its master, had, it seemed, been watching the old gentleman in his sleep, lest he should walk off with a few young poplar trees that were tied up behind the cart, and he still attended on him very closely, worrying his gaiters in fact, and making dead set at the buttons. You're such an undeniably good sleeper, sir, said John, when the tranquility was restored. In the meantime, the old gentleman had stood, bareheaded and motionless, in the centre of the room. But I have half a mind to ask you where the other six are, only that would be a joke, and I know I should spoil it. Very near, though, murmured the carrier with a chuckle. Very near. The stranger, who had long white hair, good features, singularly bold and well-defined for an old man, and dark, bright, penetrating eyes, looked round with a smile and saluted the carrier's wife by gravely inclining his head. His garb was very quaint and odd, a long, long way behind the time. Its hue was brown all over. In his hand, he held a great brown club or walking stick, and striking this upon the floor, it fell asunder and came to a chair, on which he sat down quite composedly. There, said the carrier, turning to his wife. That's the way I found him, sitting by the roadside, upright as a milestone, and almost as deaf. Sitting in the open air, John. In the open air, replied the carrier, just at dusk. Courage paid, he said, and gave me eighteen pence. Then he got in, and there he is. He's going, John, I think. Not at all. He was only going to speak. If you please, I was to be left till called for, said the stranger mildly. Don't mind me. With that, he took a pair of spectacles from his large inner pocket, and a book from another, and leisurely began to read. Making no more of Boxer than if he had been a house lamb. The carrier and his wife exchanged a look of perplexity. The stranger raised his head, and glancing from the latter to the former, said, Your daughter, my good friend? Wife, returned John. Niece, said the stranger. 
Wife, roared John. Indeed, observed the stranger. Surely very young. He quietly turned over and resumed his reading. But before he could have read two lines, he again interrupted himself to say, Baby yours. John gave a gigantic nod, equivalent to an answer in the affirmative, delivered through a speaking trumpet. Girl. Boy, roared John. Also very young, eh? Mrs. Peerybingle instantly struck in. Two months and three days. Vaccinated just six weeks ago. Took very finely. Considered by the doctor a remarkably beautiful child. Equal to the general run of children at five months old. Takes notice in a way quite wonderful. May seem impossible to you, but feels his legs already. Here the breathless little mother, who had been shrieking these short sentences into the old man's ear until her pretty face was crimson, held up the baby before him as a stubborn and triumphant fact, while Tilly Slowboy, with a melodious cry of Ketcher, Ketcher, which sounded like some unknown words adapted to a popular sneeze, performed some cow-like gambols round that all-unconscious innocent. Hark, he's called for, sure enough, said John. There's somebody at the door. Open it, Tilly. Before she could reach it, however, it was opened from without, being a primitive sort of door, with a latch that anyone could lift if he chose, and a good many people did choose, for all kinds of neighbours liked to have a cheerful word or two with the carrier, though he was not so great a talker himself. Being opened, it gave admission to a little, meagre, thoughtful, dingy-faced man, who seemed to have made himself a great coat from the sackcloth covering of some old box, for, when he turned to shut the door and keep the weather out, he disclosed upon the back of that garment the inscription G and T in large black letters, also the word glass in bold characters. Good evening, John, said the little man. Good evening, Mum. Good evening, Tilly. Good evening, Unbeknown. How's baby, Mum? Boxes pretty well, I hope. All thriving, Caleb, replied Dot. I'm sure you need only look at the dear child for one to know that. And I'm sure I need only look at you for another, said Caleb. He did not look at her, though, 
He had a wandering and thoughtful eye, which seemed to always be projecting itself into some other time and place, no matter what he said. A description which will equally apply to his voice. Or at John for another, said Caleb. Or at Tilly, as far as that goes. Or certainly at Boxer. Busy just now, Caleb, asked the carrier. Why, pretty well, John, he returned, with the distraught air of a man who was casting about for the philosopher's stone at least. Pretty much so. There's rather a run on Noah's Ark at present. I could have wished to improve upon the family, but I don't see how it's to be done at the price. It would be a satisfaction to one's mind to make it clearer which was Shem's and Ham's and which was wives. Flies aren't on that scale neither, as compared with elephants, you know. Ah well, have you got anything in the parcel lined for me, John? The carrier put his hand into his pocket of the coat he had taken off and brought out, carefully preserved in moss and paper, a tiny flower pot. There it is, he said, adjusting it with great care. Not so much as leaf damaged, full of buds. Caleb's dull eye brightened as he took it and thanked him. Dear Caleb, said the carrier, very dear at this season. Never mind that, it would be cheap to me, whatever it cost, returned the little man. Anything else, John? A small box, replied the carrier. Here you are. For Caleb Plumer, said the little man, spelling out the direction. With cash. With cash, John. I don't think it's for me. With care returned the carrier, looking over his shoulder. Where do you make out cash? Oh, to be sure, said Caleb. It's all right. With care, yes, yes, that's mine. It might have been with cash, indeed, if my dear boy in the golden South Americas had lived. You loved him like a son, didn't you? You needn't say you did. I know, of course. Caleb Plumer, with care. Yes, yes, it's all right. It's a box of doll's eyes for my daughter's work. I wish it was her own sight in a box, John. I wish it was too. Or could be, cried the carrier. Thank ye, said the little man. You speak very hearty, 
to think that she should never see the dolls, and them are staring at her, so bold all day. That's where it cuts. What's the damage, John? I'll damage you, said John, if you inquire. Dot, very near. Well, it's like you to say so, observed the little man. It's your kind way. Let me see. I think that's all. I think not, said the carrier. Try again. Something for our governor, eh? said Caleb, after pondering a little while. To be sure, that's what I came for, but my head's so running on them arcs and things. He hasn't been here, has he? Not he, returned the carrier. He's too busy courting. He's coming round, though, said Caleb, for he told me to keep on the near side of the road going home, and it was ten to one he'd take me up. I had better go, by the by. You couldn't have the goodness to let me pinch Boxer's tail, Mum, for half a moment, could you? Why, Caleb, what a question. Oh, never mind, Mum, said the little man. He mightn't like it, perhaps. There's a small order just come in for barking dogs, and I should wish to go as close to nature as I could for sixpence. That's all. Never mind, Mum. It happened opportunely that Boxer without receiving the proposed stimulus, began to bark with great zeal. But, as this implied the approach of some new visitor, Caleb, postponing his study from the life to a more convenient season, shouldered the round box and took a hurried leave. He might have spared himself the trouble for he met the visitor upon the threshold. Oh, you're here, are you? Wait a bit. I'll take you home. John Peerybingle, my service to you. More of my service to your pretty wife. Handsomer every day. Better too, if possible. And younger mused the speaker in a low voice. That's the devil of it. I should be astonished at your paying compliments, Mr. Tackleton, said Dot, not with the best grace in the world, but for your condition. You know all about it then? I've got myself to believe it somehow, said Dot. After a hard struggle, I suppose. Very. Tackleton the toy merchant, pretty generally known as Gruff and Tackleton, 
for that was the firm, though Gruff had been bought out long ago, only leaving his name, and some said his nature, according to its dictionary meaning, in the business. Tackleton the toy merchant was a man whose vocation had been quite misunderstood by his parents and guardians. If they had made him a moneylender, or a sharp attorney, or a sheriff's officer, or a broker, he might have sown his discontented oats in his youth, and, after having had the full run of himself in ill-natured transactions, might have turned out amiable, at last, for the sake of a little freshness and novelty. But cramped and chafing in the peaceable pursuit of toy-making, he was a domestic ogre who'd been living on children all his life and was their implacable enemy. He despised all toys, wouldn't have bought one for the world, delighted in his malice to insinuate grim expressions into the faces of brown paper farmers who drove pigs to market. Bellman who advertised lost lawyers' consciences. Movable old ladies who darned stockings or carved pies. And others like samples of his stock in trade. In appalling masks, hideous, hairy, red-eyed jackson boxes, vampire kites, demonical tumblers who wouldn't lie down and were perpetually flying forward to stare infants out of countenance, his soul perfectly reveled. They were his only relief and safety valve. He was great in such inventions. Anything suggestive of a pony nightmare was delicious to him. He had even lost money, and he took to that toy very kindly, by getting up goblin slides for magic lanterns, whereon the powers of darkness were depicted as a sort of supernatural shellfish with human faces. In intensifying the portraiture of giants, he had sunk quite a little capital, and though no painter himself, he could indicate, for the instruction of his artists, with a piece of chalk, a certain furtive leer for the countenance of those monsters, which was safe to destroy the peace of mind of any young gentleman between the ages of six and eleven, for the whole Christmas or Midsummer vacation. 